Hi and welcome to the Room of Lives. I am your host, Neil. Today we are joined by Pace Davis. A few months back in grad school, I met Pace at a friend's co-op. In that very first meeting, he appeared to be a pretty thoughtful and interesting fellow. I was struck by the depth of his knowledge and the eloquence with which he expressed himself and already started plotting to get him to give a talk at my university seminar or have him on my podcast. What did not come up in that first meeting, and I absolutely did not suspect until it emerged later, is that Pace has been fighting a relentless battle against intense lifelong depression and has tried such a variety of remedies on his mind that most ordinary people would find unsettling. I eventually asked him to give a talk, and he chose, over several other ideas that I'm sure he could have spoken very well about, this topic of his personal journey as a high-functioning depressive. A few days later, Pace felt less enthusiastic about giving this talk and began to chide himself for accepting the offer. On top of that, a week before the talk, his father passed away of his own depression-related alcoholism. Yet, Pace came through and prepared and delivered the talk at the university on the scheduled day. In the talk, Pace describes his years of resolute struggle to affirm his perception as the strongest in his depression-addled family, 15 years of recurring suicide plans, and why he finally decided to start taking medication and how life has changed since. He also addresses our long-standing societal stigmas surrounding mental health and the ways in which they impact someone like him. Quick note, there was a little child in the room close to the mic and she keeps contributing her thoughts intermittently. I don't know how to remove that from the recording, so you'll just have to ignore it as a little added meditation challenge. As always, if you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, consider donating Dai or Ether to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. asked me to talk about any topic I wanted at Mall's Help Seminar, and I thought that depression and mental health would be the best thing I could talk about. Um, and mostly because um, I think it's the, the quote I've seen that I liked is, it's the family secret that everyone has. Um, and it's talked about, but it's often talked about in a pretty sanitized way. Um, and I think that... Um, one of the best things that about talking about it is that you realize how many other people experience it in some form or fashion and suffer, and that um, with the right support, um, that people's lives can be made uh, uh, unbelievably better. And so, anyway, so I'm going to start with a quote uh, from a book that I love uh, by Andrew Solomon called The Noonday Demon. 
and it's a very long book that he wrote about his personal experience going through uh, debilitating depression and the stories he wanted to tell of all the people that he encountered who were so thankful that he wrote an article uh, about his experience. Um, and so this is from an early part in the book, and it's rather long. Um, this is the only long thing I'll read, but just try to focus and, and listen to these statistics. I am persuaded that some of the broadest figures for depression are based in reality. Though it is a mistake to confuse numbers with truth, these figures tell an alarming story. According to recent research, about 3% of Americans, some 19 million, suffer from chronic depression. More than 2 million of these are children. Manic depressive illness, often called bipolar illness because of the mood of its victims, varies from mania to depression, afflicts about 2.3 million, and is the second leading killer of young women, the third of young men. Depression, as described in the DSM-4, is the leading cause of disability in the United States and abroad for persons over the age of five. Worldwide, including the developing world, depression accounts for more of the disease burden, as calculated by premature death plus healthy life years lost to disability, than anything else but heart disease. Depression claims more years than war, cancer, and AIDS put together. Other illnesses, from alcoholism to heart disease, mask depression when it causes them. If one takes that into consideration, depression may be the biggest killer on earth. Treatments for depression are proliferating now, but only half of Americans who have had major depression have ever sought help of any kind, even from a clergyman or a counselor. About 95% of that 50% go to primary care physicians, who often don't know much about psychiatric complaints. An American adult with depression would have his rec illness recognized only about 40% of the time. Nonetheless, about 28 million Americans, one in every 10, are now on SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the class of drugs to which Prozac belongs. And a substantial number are on other medications. Less than half of those whose illness is recognized will get appropriate treatment. As definitions of depression have broadened to include more and more of the general populations, it has become increasingly difficult to calculate any exact mortality figure. The statistic traditionally given is that 15% of depressed people will eventually commit suicide. This figure still holds for those with extreme illness. Recent studies that include milder depression show that 2 to 4% of depressives will die by their own hand as a direct consequence of the illness. This is still a staggering figure. 20 years ago, about 1.5% of the population had depression that required treatment. Now it's 5%, and as many as 10% of all Americans now living, now living can expect to have a major depressive episode in their, during their life. About 50% will experience some symptoms of depression. Clinical problems have increased. Treatments have increased vastly more. Diagnosis is on the up, but that does not explain the scale of this problem. Incidents of depression are increasing across the developed world, particularly in children. Depression is occurring in younger people, making its first appearance when its victims are about 26, 10 years younger than a generation ago. Bipolar disorder, or manic depressive illness, sets in even earlier. Things are getting worse. There are few conditions at once as undertreated and as overtreated as depression. 
People who become totally dysfunctional are ultimately hospitalized and are likely to receive treatment, though sometimes their depression is confused with the physical ailments through which it is experienced. A world of people, however, are just barely holding on and continue, despite the great revolutions in psychiatric and psychopharmaceutical treatments, to suffer abject misery. More than half of those who do seek help, another 25% of the depressed population, receive no treatment. About half of those who do receive treatment, 13% or so of the depressed population, receive unsuitable treatment, often tranquilizers or immaterial psychotherapies. Of those who are left, half, some 6% of the depressed population, receive inadequate dosage for an inadequate length of time. So that leaves about 6% of the total depressed population who are getting adequate treatment. But many of these ultimately go off their medications, usually because of side effects. And the quote is from a doctor, it's between 1% and 2% who get really optimal treatment. So, that's the introduction to the, the talk. Um, so, this is going to be mostly my personal story. Um, and I think, for me, um, the best way to start is how did I finally arrive at the idea that it was time to get real treatment. Um, and um, I think my background, my first major depression was when I was nine years old. Um, I became incapable of going to school. I couldn't get out of bed. Um, and I would say I was sick every day. And over a period of about five months, I missed over half of the days of school that semester. Um, and the way it was explained to me at the time was that I did not like my teacher. Um, and once I got a better teacher, I would go to school. Um, and from that point on, um, with sometimes a couple of years in between episodes, I would have episodes. And, they, and one of the things that can happen is they can get worse. So episodes can can sometimes be mild, and sometimes they can grow in their severity. Um, and so, about a year and four or five months ago, I started having a depressive episode. Um, and it was the longest um, and probably hardest of my life. Um, and it lasted almost an entire year. Um, but the thing that made this one exceptional to me is that I could always find an excuse before that I could change something about my life, and if I changed that thing, I could find a way out. And I think this time, I, at 30 years old, um, after trying a million different things that weren't pharmacology and weren't effective therapy, I gave in. Um, Um, so I think for me, what, you know, what drove that idea to seek help, um, was that I just didn't know what else to do. I don't think it was a, a an epiphany moment of, oh, oh, I know that there's this help out there and, um, I'm going to go after it and it's going to be great. I, um, I had a therapist and I said, you know. I'm 30, and um, 
I don't drink very much anymore. I quit smoking cigarettes. I exercise regularly. I sleep eight hours a day. And, you know, I do X and I do Y and I do Z. And I still feel bad almost all the time. And, she, and I said, do you think that maybe I should talk to a psychiatrist? And she said, I mean, I think that you've got some trauma and we can work through it. But I don't, you know, I see people that I think, you know, need to go that route. I don't. But I don't think that's you. I think that, you know, you've got some stuff to work through from your childhood. And then, and then, and then you know, it's, I'm not going to say you shouldn't do it, but I don't really think that that makes sense. You know, sometimes I see someone and it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense for you. And so I changed my health insurance because uh, I changed jobs. And I couldn't see her anymore, which ended up being a blessing. Um, and things got worse, <laughs> right? Um, things got worse. Um, and, um, I walked into, I, I was lucky or lucky. We live in a County with a, uh, integrated mental health services organization. Um, and I walked into the County and I went through my intake appointment and I said, okay, things are really bad. So I'm finally going to be a hundred percent honest with a therapist. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to unload on a therapist because every other time I would be like, yeah, you know, I was pretty sad about this thing that happened last week. Um, but I never really, I, I think relatively, I thought, you know, all right, I'm, I do, I'm pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. So I sat down with this therapist and I said, you know, I don't really feel any pleasure, almost ever. And I probably spend about 50% of the time wanting to die. And on the bad days, I plan for it. And she said... When's your, psych- when's your psychiatrist appointment? And I said, I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you've been to therapy off and on for 15 years, and you're now coming to me, and you're telling me this, which means that just therapy doesn't work for you. And I was like, oh, okay. And she said, I think you could probably consider that you've given it the old college try. So I'm going to move your uh, psychiatrist appointment forward, and we're going to get you help now. So I went into the psychiatrist, and I described my symptoms, and and she said, okay, we're going to try this medicine. And that's kind of where the journey begins. Um, So I guess the thing to talk about would be what were my symptoms. Um, And one of the things I put on the talk description is, uh, what is it like to be a high-functioning depressive? Um, because I think we have, and I had, uh, an idea of depression as this debilitating disease that makes people um, overtly anxious, visibly anxious, visibly uh, uh, kind of either catatonic or unable to express their feelings or unable to express how bad they hurt. And I realized, looking around, that all of my friends, the people I had collected in my life as friends, that we were often the strongest people in our families. And it was for that very reason that we had managed to make it so far without help. And so my symptoms were that from the time I was nine until the present time, I would be succeeding at something. I would be 
working really hard in school, I would be getting good grades, I would be good at my job, I would have relationships, I would have friendships, I would have love, and I would fall apart. And every time I fell apart, I would say, you got to pick yourself up. You're just not tough enough. You got to pick yourself up. You got to go and find the reason why you're sad because you're doing so good. And that went on for so long. And I managed to quit drinking because if I drank too much, I got too sad. I managed to stop smoking cigarettes because I thought, well, if I feel bad smoking cigarettes, it must be the cigarettes. I managed to stop using most drugs. I managed to stop having friends who did things that were, um, you know, uh, morally complex. Um, uh, you know, and I thought, if I clean up my side of the street completely, I don't have to be sad. And it just kept coming back. Um, so I was lucky and I was, um, I had this moment where I just gave up. I, I kind of gave up and I said, I'm going to try to find somebody who, and I'm just going to listen to them. They're going to say something and I'm going to go, okay, fine. So let's, I'm going to just totally give up all control. Um, and one of the clips that inspired me to do that is this very short end of, I'm sure most people know who Sam Harris is. He was interviewing Robert Sapolsky, and Robert Sapolsky is an incredibly, um, incredibly respected neuroendocrinologist, primatologist, and biologist who's written books about stress. He's, in the last 10 years, he's actually taken his work in the direction of speaking on depression, on the biological realities of depression, and how this is a disease that is like diabetes, and we don't treat it that way. And I was listening to an interview about free will. And at the very end of the interview, Sam Harris presses Robert Sapolsky about why he doesn't do drugs or drink. And Robert Sapolsky gives this very beautiful answer. It's very personable here, and I, I certainly, I hope anybody else would ever listen to this. Um, basic reason is uh, since early adolescence, I've had lifelong and some pretty severe problems with major depression and what was made clear to me by all sorts of wise professionals around then that I amply agreed with was my neurochemistry was screwed up enough and I really didn't want to like screw around with it further. Um, it, was, it was fragile enough so just as well not uh, not add something to the, the not very functional mix. So now, have you found a way to mitigate the depression with, you know, pharmacologically or otherwise? Is that, is it under control or is it a continuous struggle? It's manageable with a lot of very good professional help, including pharmacology. Um, and there's probably no realm in which I more readily get up on some sort of soapbox about biological roots of behavior. It's a biochemical disorder, it's some screwy genes, some screwy early experience that synergistically does you in coupled with the genes, it's screwed up neurotransmitters. It's as biochemical of a disorder as is diabetes. And it's very hard to accept that. 
and for people to, it's far easier to decide that, hey, I know how to work hard, or I was very disciplined at this time. I have a lot of gumption and backbone. I should be able to overcome that. Come on, pull yourself together. It's a biological disorder, and I tell that to people endlessly, and sometimes I even pay attention to what I'm telling people that. For any of our listeners who are dealing with this or have a, a member of their family who is dealing with it, do you have any advice, any, any memes you think they should ream out of their heads? It sounds like you, you just did that to a couple, or anything, or any resources you think they should seek out before others? Okay, going into preacherly mode here, amid there being lots of reasons where uh, a lot of the meds are abused, overprescribed, used for the wrong reasons, used as a crutch, used for blah blah, military, industrial, pharmacological complex, be on your guard, etc., etc. An untreated major depression is one of the most life threatening diseases out there. Um, as another thing to emphasize in there, in terms of its biological roots, you don't sit somebody down who has diabetes and say, oh, come on, what's with this insulin stuff? Stop babying yourself, pull yourself together. Um, whether it's you or whether it's a loved one dealing with the likes of something like major depression, it's a biological phenomenon. You don't tell people, come on, heal your broken bone faster. Let's see some discipline in backbone. Are there any books? So I heard that clip. Uh, just listening to the podcast kind of on passing, and I thought, whoa, this is a smart guy. And and he's remarkably capable. I mean, he is a prolific uh, uh, researcher. And he is out there spreading the message that this is something that everyone needs to take very seriously and that there's no shame in getting help and talking about it in sharing your stories in in being prepared to listen to those who who are going through this um and what struck me about the way he talks about it is that it's not simple but he sees the need to get treatment as simple he sees what is often spoken about in very complex terms as simple. Um, and, and I think after hearing him, I looked at more of the research about the genetic and epigenetic components of depression, the childhood events that we go through that trigger these event, these depressions. And I started thinking about my family. And I started thinking about the idea that I was the only one that didn't totally fall apart out of my entire immediate family. I was the only one who didn't have to seek help because I, I was disabled by my depression. And I used to think of that as this amazing thing. I thought, I'm strong. And they were weak. And, and that's how it's talked about. It's talked about like the people who get help, it's good they got it. And it's really great that they got the help and they needed it. And, you know, it's kind of weird that they needed it, but they got it and that's good. <laughs> right? Because 
you don't need help, and well, we don't need help, but they need help. And then they had to get it, and they just couldn't hold on long enough to get it themselves. Because if they just held on a little longer, they would have helped themselves, but they couldn't make it. And everyone else is going to make it. And I realized that that's how I'd related is that I relatively was successful. And my entire world was looked at in the terms of mental health relativity. And I was the king in that world. Except that I wanted to die all the time. Except that I went through yearly crushing depressions and I would quit jobs and I would find a new I would find a new hobby and I'd find new friends and I would white knuckle my way through something else really difficult and hell I might you know if I'd stuck around long enough maybe I would have white knuckled myself through a couple PhDs you know because because what's better to get through a depression than just working <laughs> right because no, no, no. do a PhD if you want to get it. yeah <laughs> no but I, I'm saying you know you just it's like and that's what I think we, we see and you know we see people of I, I do now that I talk about it I see people of all different backgrounds and all different experiences and the ones that I see having the most complicated relationship with their mental health are the ones who could grind their way through anything because if they could focus on one thing, they could kind of hold the wall, hold the door against everything else that was always there. But as soon as that ends and as soon as that passes, it comes. And then, the, and then, like I was, you're on to something new, something that can keep you alive just a little bit longer. And so there's a really wonderful clip. The author of The Noonday Demon talks about this regarding poverty. And I think that what I love is that he chose poverty, but I think that we can talk about the relativity of depression in all kinds of ways. Um, and I wanted to play this clip. This is the, this is the clip from his TED Talk that stood out to me the most. Um, he talks about what happens when people in a state of poverty actually are acknowledged and treated. I'm struck by the fact that depression is broadly perceived to be a modern, western, middle-class thing. And I went to look at how it operated in a variety of other contexts. And one of the things I was most interested in was depression among the indigent. And so I went out to try to look at what was being done for poor people with depression. And what I discovered is that poor people are mostly not being treated for depression. Depression is the result of a genetic vulnerability, which is presumably evenly distributed in the population, and triggering circumstances, which are likely to be more severe for people who are impoverished. And yet, it turns out that if you have a really lovely life but feel miserable all the time, you think, why do I feel like this? I must have depression. And you set out to find treatment for it. But if you have a perfectly awful life and you feel miserable all the time, the way you feel is commensurate with your life. And it doesn't occur to you to think this is treatable. And so we have an epidemic in this country of depression among impoverished people that's not being picked up and that's not being treated and that's not being addressed. And it's a tragedy of the grand order. And so I found an academic who was doing a research project in slums outside of DC where she picked up women who had come in for other health problems 
and diagnosed them with depression and then provided six months of experimental protocol. One of them, Lolly, came in, and this is what she said the day she came in. She said, and she was a woman, by the way, um, who had seven children. She said, I used to have a job, but I had to give it up because I couldn't go out of the house. I have nothing to say to my children. In the morning, I can't wait for them to leave. And then I climb in bed and pull the covers over my head. And three o'clock when they come home, it just comes so fast. She said, I've been taking a lot of Tylenol, anything I can take so that I can sleep more. My husband has been telling me, I'm stupid, I'm ugly. I wish I could stop the pain. Well, she was brought into this experimental protocol. And when I interviewed her six months later, she had taken a job working in childcare um, for the US Navy. She had left the abusive husband, and she said to me, my kids are so much happier now. She said, there's one room in my new place for the boys and one room for the girls, but at night, they're just all up on my bed and we're doing homework all together and everything. One of them wants to be a preacher, one of them wants to be a firefighter, and one of the girls says she's going to be a lawyer. They don't cry like they used to, and they don't fight like they did. That's all I need now is my kids. Things keep on changing. The way I dress, the way I feel, the way I act. I can go outside not being afraid anymore. And I don't think those bad feelings are coming back. And if it weren't for Dr. Miranda and that, I would still be at home with the covers pulled over my head if I were still alive at all. I asked the Lord to send me an angel, and he heard my prayers. I was really moved by these experiences, and I decided that I wanted to write about them, not only in a book I was working on, but also in an article. And so I got a commission from the New York Times Magazine to write about depression among the indigent. And I turned in my story, and my editor called me and said, we really can't publish this. And I said, why not? And she said, it just is too far-fetched. These people who are sort of at the very bottom rung of society, and then they get a few months of treatment, and they're virtually ready to run Morgan Stanley. It's just too impossible. She said, I've never even heard of anything like it. And I said, the fact that you've never heard of it is an indication that it is news. <laughs> and you are a news magazine. So after a certain amount of negotiation, they agreed to it. But I think a lot of what they said was connected in some strange way to this distaste that people still have for the idea of treatment. The notion that somehow if we went out and treated a lot of people in indigent communities, that would be an exploitative thing to do because we'd be changing them. There's this false moral imperative that seems to be all around us that treatment of depression, the medications and so on, are an artifice and that it's not natural. Um, and I think that's very misguided. It would be natural for people's teeth to fall out, but there is nobody militating against toothpaste. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that's Andrew Solomon. He's really done an incredible job talking about this openly and his experience and trying to tell other people's stories. Um, what, do you know uh, what this experimental protocol was that he mentioned? I don't. I'm guessing it was therapy and pharmacological intervention, so both medicine and therapy. Um, um, but 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things that once I finally went in and I said, okay, I give up. Help me. Um, and then that that didn't work. I mean, it's not like I didn't go in and say, help me, and the next week I was good. It's actually, it got worse. Um, it got worse because um, to get help, you have to open up some things that are pretty dangerous to open up. Um, but I had this incredible experience, for the most part, um, where my therapist and my psychiatrist would talk to each other, and they would talk to me, and they would work together, and they would help me, and we would try something, and it wouldn't work, and they would say, that didn't work, okay, let's try something else. Um, and for the first time in my life, and as, as someone who's spent off and on 15 years in therapist, this person I go to now is my fourth therapist, I also finally learned what good therapy is. And I only had to go through three bad ones. And so I thought, man, I'm still miserable. And this is June, July, August, September. But, but this might work. Like something might work. Um, and I swallowed my pride and I took a medicine and then I took a second medicine. And I went to therapy every week and I was honest to my therapist. Um, and I was trying to be more honest to other people. Um, and man, uh, the crappiest thing is that it's not a linear path. Um, and that's another thing I realized is that, you know, I think there are people who have these remarkable turnarounds. And that's so cool. But for me, I remember I went to a 10-day meditation retreat. And I got out and I was so zinned out. I was like, oh, medicine works. I feel great. I've reached eternal peace, and then I fell apart again. And and every time I fell apart, I went back and I told I said, Sarah, I fell. I'm I'm, I'm a fucking mess this week. This is a mess. And she'd go, Okay, we'll try. We're gonna try this now. And she would she would find a new thing to try, right? And so I started having these. Uh, Experience, so I started trying uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Does everyone here know what cognitive behavioral therapy is? Okay, so cognitive behavioral therapy is the is the combination of cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy. In behavioral therapy, if you think like Pavlov's dog, like you know the ringing of the bell, right? This idea that we pro our behaviors become programmed through our lives, and that you can reprogram them. And then cognitive therapy is. Um, is uh is well and how it was mixed is cognitive therapy is this like kind of philosophical idea of cognitive um, realities and this man named albert ellis wrote a book in 1962 and he is considered the father of cognitive behavioral therapy and what he did is he found that his patients would come in and they would say you know My boyfriend said something mean this week. Everyone hates me. I think everyone hates me. Nobody likes me, and I'm going to die alone. And the therapist would say, okay, why do you, how, how do you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? And he found in his therapy that if he challenged it, he said, okay, I want you to explain why that's correct. I want you to explain why that's, the, why that's a reality. What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? And so he created this idea of... Um, of uh, uh, 
cognitive distortions, which that we walk around, many of us who are depressed, walk around with these distortions because we're already depressed. And then someone doesn't call us back and we say, nobody likes me. I don't have any friends. Oh God, I knew it. I have zero friends. Okay, I'm going to die alone. And so this, and, and many other thoughts, and they created basically exercises that where you go through when you have one of those extreme thoughts and you go through and you look at why you have this thought, how, how it's advantageous for you to have this thought, how it's disadvantageous for you to have a thought, and basically slowly through doing the exercises, you can kind of rework your, your patterns, the patterns that you've picked up in your life. Um, and they found it was remarkably successful in research. Um, and so I started doing that. And the first time you do cognitive behavioral therapy, if you're like an emotionally intelligent person, you're like, I'm not five. Did you just hand me a worksheet that asked me to rate my feelings by percentage points? <laughs> oh, I'm sad at 60%. Go fuck yourself. You know, you're like, I hate you. How could anyone hand me a worksheet that asked me to say I was 60% sad? <laughs> Um, and, uh, and then you do it, <laughs> you swallow your pride and you do it and then you do it again and then you do it again and you do it again and slowly again in a non-linear way, stuff starts getting better. You move to the left a little bit, you move to the right a little bit, you know, but you're kind of making progress towards something. Um, and you know, and then uh, I had done a very small amount of what's called EMDR, which is a trauma-based therapy where you move your eyes and it sounds super weird, you know. But there are, I started realizing that there's so many therapies out there and there's so many practitioners um, and a, hopefully a good enough number of them are good and, um, and, so as time went on, I, I found as the year progressed that it wasn't like I had seven good days in a row. It was like I had three. I had three good days. And that was a victory, man. Whoa. Like there was three days this week where I was excited about something, you know, and the rest of the other four, I was a dumpster fire. But that was going to have to be okay. Um, and, um, and I think that... I, I was really touched by this passage from Andrew Solomon's book because I realized so many of the people I cared about, including myself, had taken this approach to their depression, which was to punish themselves, to repeatedly punish themselves for being born with some genetics and having some bad childhood experiences and having some, some things triggered inside of themselves, which they had no control over. And the way they had punished themselves was by restricting all of the good things in their life so they could just hold on. And this passage is the one that just jumped out at me when I read the book. And it says, At a cocktail party in London, I saw an acquaintance and mentioned that I was writing this book. I had a terrible depression, she said. I asked her what she had done about it. I didn't like the idea of medication, she said. I realized that my problem was stress-related, so I decided to eliminate all the causes of stress in my life. She counted off on her fingers. I quit my job. I broke up with my boyfriend and never really looked for another one. I gave up my roommate, and now I live alone. I stopped going to parties that run late. I moved to a smaller place. 
I dropped most of my friends. I gave up pretty much on makeup and clothes. I was looking at her with horror. It sounds bad, but I'm really much happier and much less afraid than before. And she looked proud, and I did it without pills. And I read that, and I thought, whoa, I'm 30. I don't want to be 31 and do this. And I definitely don't want to be 32 and still be doing this. And so I gave in, and I, I, the first moment I realized that I will gladly take two medicines a day for the rest of my life, and I will gladly go to therapy for the rest of my life, if it means that I get to have three or four good days a week, maybe somewhere I'll get to have four. <coughs> and that would be wonderful. I don't need six or seven. If it comes, I'm so open to it. But I think that for all of us that know people and that have experienced it and that have family members who've suffered from it, I think the kindest thing we can do is one, to be kind to ourselves, and two, to have that loving conversation with the people you know that hurt so badly and let them know it's okay to be weak and let them know it's okay to give up in the right way and 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 hopefully they'll get and we can all get the help that we need so anyway that's it or comments. That was such a great talk. Um, this person, Andrew Solomon, mm -hmm. what's, um, so he himself, I have watched his TED talk, so I think I remember that he himself suffers from depression, mm -hmm. but is he professionally connected to uh, studying depression in some way? Uh, what is this book about? So this is, um, he wrote this book, um, I think about 10 years after suffering his first major depressive episode. And um, he was just an author. And his mother passed uh, away and, um, and he, I guess about six months after his mother passed away, he became basically catatonic. Uh, and, and couldn't get out of bed and couldn't dress himself and couldn't feed himself. Um, and in the book, he talks a little bit about the, the years before these kind of small episodes he would have. But this was so bad, he had to call his father and his father had to care for him as if he was indigent. Um, and so once he overcame the first and the second episode, he wrote an article, I think it was published in the New York Times. And he got like hundreds of letters, maybe thousands from people that were like, I want to tell my story to you. Thank you for writing this article. And so the book is kind of three parts. It's his story. It's the story of dozens of other people from all walks of life. Many of them who have, who have undergone much more significant treatment than he did. Um, and, they're, and they're kind of really hopeful stories. Um, and the third part is that he goes around and he tries to interview people or go experience all the different kinds of therapies uh, that people 
go to and, and, and talk to psychiatrists and talk to psychologists and write about their opinions. Um, and one of the stances he takes very firmly in the book is that anything that makes you feel better is an effective therapy. Um, when, he saw, when he started, he said, oh, I had this idea that there was only two types of therapy or three that worked. And then he said, but if anything helps you, if anything makes your life better, it's an effective therapy. Unlike certain other things, right? Like, you know, like you, he talks about you can stand on your head if you have cancer, and it probably won't do anything for your cancer. But if standing on your head makes you have a good day, it's an effective therapy for your depression. Um, and so he's very open to this idea that I think writing this book and his experiences opened him to the idea that this, this should be a very open topic um, that should be discussed constantly uh, and, and, and without uh, a lot of bias. Yeah, so I re it's a great book. It's incredible. I have a question. Um, how much of a role would you say per perspective played in healing and getting to you, getting you to where you are today? And then also, um, what did it take for you to believe those perspectives possible? Hmm. You know. That's a good question. I don't think perspective played much of a role in me getting treatment at first. I think I was just desperate. I think desperation probably played a role in getting treatment. Um, you know, I, that's, I can't tell if something, better things came and perspective followed, if perspective came first and then better things came. Like I feel like the first time I had a good day or two in a row, it changed my perspective. I don't know if I said, oh, I'm, I'm willing to settle for two good days. I just don't think I knew that I could stay up till two drinking with a friend and actually enjoy it. And I, it happened and I was like, <laughs> where did this come from? I didn't get eight hours of sleep last night. I didn't go to sleep at the same time. Um, you know, I didn't have to get up and leave in the middle of the conversation because I got so anxious or depressed. I was able to just sit there until it was over. Um, so that's, I mean, perspective is maybe a little bit of just being like grateful, but I feel like it actually came after. The, my perspective was changed by my experience changing. And, I, and maybe that's helped me to continue to, the perspective continue, to continue to evolve. But it's, I, I don't know. That's a good question. So this may be too, too much. And feel free to answer it as much or little as you please. But... If you're open to talking about it, what does a bad day look like for you? And then maybe in contrast, what is a good day? Well, I guess um, a bad day has a scale. Um, there's there's uh, my anhedonic bad days, which is I experience no pleasure. So there are days in which I feel no pleasure at anything. Um, I get up in the morning and... I don't enjoy my coffee or my breakfast. I don't want to go to work, but I go. And I smile and I'm nice to people, but I don't actually feel anything. Um, and then I go maybe exercise or do something after. And on those days, they're bad because I can't do anything that I should enjoy because I can't enjoy it. And so if I already have plans to meet somebody, it's hard because I'm going to have to try to find a way to fake enjoying a conversation. Um, and that's one kind of bad. A really bad day? A really bad day is um, a day in which I wake up 
And the first thing that happens when I wake up is that I think about how how lucky I'd be if I could die a natural a natural death that wasn't my fault, so that I could avoid being blamed for dying. And if that doesn't happen, which it has yet to happen, um, I think about the plan to commit suicide that I've had for 15 years. And um, fortunately for me, my plan takes about a week. And so I usually give up pretty early on because a week's a long time. And I don't usually feel that bad for a week. And that's a really bad day. Um, yeah. And a good day. A good day is I wake up. Usually my neck or back doesn't hurt. That's a good, that's a, that's a start. Uh, I enjoy my coffee. I'm, I, um, I like the taste of my food. Um, you know, I go to work or I do whatever I have. Um, and the difference between a good day and a bad day for, for the not terrible days is really just that I like people and that I enjoy talking to people and that I can connect to people and that I can feel excited about something and that I can imagine um, accomplishing something not because I've given myself the arbitrary requirement to accomplish it, but because there's a feeling of excitement about accomplishing it. Um, and that's been interesting because what... What I would say the biggest change from a good and bad day is, is that a good day or enough of them make me want to try things I don't do all the time. Because I'm excited about something that might not be the thing that I did just to make it through the bad day. Yeah. Cool. Does that answer? Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. that stood out to me was describing um, like the depressive disposition as a genetic vulnerability um, and I've experienced depression throughout my life and as part of the mood dysregulation condition I have and um, one of the reasons why I went so long without getting diagnosed was um, was because of like the environmental factors and circumstances that that inform how you understand why your neurochemistry is functioning. How is it like this whole idea that um, my circumstances are poor, therefore, like it's understandable that I'm suffering. Um, and uh, so, uh, an enormous confusion for me was that. I understood myself not as somebody who was like experiencing like some neurochemical oddities in a vacuum, but somebody that was just very sensitive to the external world. So like I wasn't the, like this this idea that the opposite of depression is unhappiness, but vitality really sticks out to me because like the manic aspect of like like manic depressive disorder is often described as euphoric, but like the way that I experience it and the way that I've heard
experienced by a lot of people is like be feeling very, very alive and engaged and responsive to everything. And so, um, oh, what I was trying to say was like, like what I experience cycling is, uh, just being very inspired or just being very interested in people. Um, when I'm on an upswing and then the depressive aspect is justified by the distressing realities that actually exist in the world. Um, and so what I'm trying to say, and, and then also too, like the genetic aspect of these mirror chemistries and, and that they are often triggered by like childhood experiences, um, uh, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that um, it's difficult, it was difficult for me to understand myself as um, being different from others um, in a way, like, I feel like, 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 uh, these conditions can be talked about as though they're, they're almost divorced from reality rather than being partially informed by reality and importantly informed by reality in some senses. Um, and I'm talking very slow. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but something like the phrase genetic vulnerability, the reason why uh, I think that that's an interesting phrase is because uh, there, the, um, there's a psychologist and a researcher at Berkeley, and he's like the director of the the Clinic for Bipolar Disorder, and he's really interesting. He, he wrote something like um, the bipolar brain, uh, or that the typical brain is resilient, but the bipolar brain is, is rather fragile. And what, that, what I understood reading that like, like last year um, helped me see that possibly it's the case that people who, like the, the other 90% of the population, um, has these built-in neurochemical like, coping mechanisms for handling like, like the enormous rush like that that you can experience in the world because it's very beautiful and then and then the pain that you can experience because it's also really terrible and and so how like genetic vulnerability how that how, like um I'm starting to lose my I'm getting nervous talking about it. <laughs> but genetic vulnerability um is interesting to me because it suggests that like maybe on the other side the other ninety percent are resilient. Like like rather than than um, these feelings not being informed by the external world, but just that they're, that most people are just um, have like compartmentalization capacities and um, don't experience those intensities because there's like a biological safeguard against those things. So, that makes me think of this study. I was trying to find it before the talk and I couldn't, but there's like some really large study in either Australia or New Zealand where they followed thousands of children who had two different genes that affect serotonin. And at outset, with no traumatic events, they both had the same percentage chance of having depression. But after like seven or eight traumatic events, one group had a 40% increased chance and the other had a 400% increased chance. Yeah, yeah I read about that. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's okay for you So I have a son, and so I became really interested in the genetic aspect of bipolar. And what I learned 
was that um, uh, so it's it's very clear that there's like like a genetic disposition for bipolar, but it's not necessarily the case that it manifests right behaviorally or neurochemically, and that those are those like childhood experiment experience triggers. Um, but like what was interesting to me was that um, the same thing that you're describing is that it doesn't reliably turn on for everybody. Like like some people are extra sensitive to it, and um, and yeah, it's just. Yeah, I like I like that like it's talked about in that way because it's I mean it's you know it's, it doesn't solve everything but it makes it makes it less like oh you just why aren't you tougher personally you know it's kind of like it's a roll of dice and you know and and let's help you I don't know that's kind of how it comes off to me which I like it's not a personality fault yeah yeah yeah. And I think that there's something you said about like the sensitivity to the actual things in the world that are really bad. And I think what's interesting about depressive personality, and I can only speak to my experience, is that there are a lot of really awful questions that you can wrestle with if you if you want to. I mean, not if you want to, but if you encounter them, right? And it seems like the depressive personality, right? The depressive person. Or, you know, maybe the bipolar mind. When you get into that reality, you acknowledge it for its kind of real, real state of things. They're real state of things, and they can be very bleak. But it seems like the, re- the resilient brain goes, okay, either or either maybe just doesn't even say, I, I'm not going to think about that. That's Because like, I've had conversations, and one of the things I found about depressive people is that we can talk about the darkest shit for hours. I mean, hours. I can talk about, like like food insecurity throughout the world and I can just talk about it and I can have this totally level like yeah it's so fucked up but I but like but then I find people who are not depressive often are like I don't want I, I don't want to talk about this I do not want to talk about this I don't I have no interest in talking about this at all actually and it's interesting because it's like that you know how this in how this stuff encounters our brains when it enters it right why some people are the word okay seems off but are capable of entertaining the true dark nature of, of, of certain things in the world, death, humanity, uh, interactions, and why some people are like, yeah, I want to go watch a show that makes me feel good. Like, you know, <laughs> or I want to go do this thing that makes me feel good. And, and, I, and, that's, I've, and I think the hard part, I don't know if, if anyone here is experiencing yeah. but there's some kind of attachment to that madness after a long enough. You're like... I am an insightful person who experiences deep <laughs> feelings. I have wells of yeah. deep feelings in me. And if I go get help, do I get to keep the madness? Like, are the, are, are the, in, and, it, and, I, and I had a friend and she actually said this to me. She said, you know, it's really, it's really, it's really interesting you're getting treatment. Do you find that it takes away your ability to feel? And I was like, and I was like, that's an interesting question. And she wasn't being like, you know, too. She's like, you know, do you ever feel like, though, like you might lose kind of the edge? And I was like, I can't write poetry because I'm so depressed all the time. I may actually be able to write a poem now. Like, and I might be able to tap into the stuff that was always there, but it's not like I'm not overwhelmed, but it's like oh, I'm a failure before I even pick up a pen. And it's like, so it's like the idea, you know, or I could go talk, you know, I could go, I could talk in front of people. And it's like the idea of sharing depressed is like, 
the madness is there, but I, I'm sure it's not getting up in front of anybody and talking about it. So I think that's like one thing I experienced. I, but I kind of like also make it into like a habit. Like your brain has this, like it doesn't feel real if you don't go in that cycle or you don't relate to it in that way. And it's automatically like doing it over and over again. And, and that's why I think the cognitive behavioral therapy helps is because you have to interrupt the habit of it. And so it's like, and you almost, it's I kind of is weird how it's conceptualized because it's almost like a craving or like how and also i think you self-identify so much to the paradigm that you don't even know how to understand like it outside of that yeah. world and there's comfort too in, in that routine oh. even if it's a terrible routine oh yeah yeah i mean and it's weird because i i you know i have a few good days i agreed to this talk and then i thought you're a Idiot. Why did you <laughs> and then I was like, and then on Tuesdays I was like, the talk's on Friday and you don't want to meet anyone new today or talk to anyone today. Are you going to be like that on Friday? Like, and then like Thursday came and I'm like, I don't want to talk to any people on Thursday. Like, I sure don't have to. And, and so it's like, it's, it's interesting because it's still as better as it gets and, it, and it's still getting better. It's, a, it's been like a, a pattern, a constant like re-encountering the, I don't know, the patterns, the the kind of the the madness uh, I feel like and and you know and then and then like trying to find different ways to skirt them or to like you know kind of get out of them. Yeah. So there was this article in Medium.com uh, October uh, last year, a really good article. I just pulled it up. It's called Autism, Guilt, and Shame, and uh, the guy describes you know the, like uh, basically how it is to be autistic person and uh, I know somebody uh, from work who, who I suspect has that and until I kind of read this article it was very difficult dealing with this person and this is like not just my opinion like you know, universal because he just like I mean he'll start talking in the middle of a sentence of others and then, like his social skills are just really all over the place uh, but once I read this article uh, like you know now I can you know I have a better way of, you know, at least understanding where he's coming from. Do you think it would help if people who have, you know, uh, well, I mean, sorry, you know, but basically, if others knew about them, that, you know, they would be better, you know, prepared to deal with them. By dealing, by dealing, I just mean, like, they would, like, necessarily get, you know, call that a bad person or whatever, like, you know, but I mean, uh, kind of know that, yeah. So, like, I mean, if somebody, you know, basically, uh, you know, kind of as it was steps out of the closet and tells that you know hey you know this is, this is the deal and uh, uh, you know uh, just thought what probably I'm just curious what do you think that of that yeah I mean I think that more people knowing about it and people expressing it I think it's risky I mean I think that um, it can be really risky to talk about your illness in the wrong environments um, I know I, I can't talk too much about it but I have a family member who is diagnosed as bipolar and they were so excited. And, oh, that sounds Sorry, weird. No, 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 no. But they were, we were having dinner and they were like, I just got diagnosed with bipolar. And I said, and he said, I, they said, I'm pumped. And I was like, not to be bipolar, but to be diagnosed. And I said, why? And he was like, well, I actually have a condition that people recognize as a real condition. And, and, it, was, and it was like, if a cop, you know, if, if, if someone shows up and says, and says, oh, they're depressed, people's like, just fucking pick yourself up. But if you tell someone, oh, that person's a diagnosed bipolar, they're like, and they're off their meds, 
people will actually treat them with some more degree of care. And they were like, that's actually a really interesting, they were, they were, they were, they were excited that they, one, had been properly diagnosed, and two, were properly being treated. But really, they were also decided, they were excited because people recognize certain things and they don't recognize others at all. And so if you, you know, and, 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 and this is not in every environment, but he was like, at my workplace, if I say I'm bipolar and something happens, like I may actually get the protections to have to right. not go to work that day. But if I, if I said I'm, di I'm diagnosed with a major depressive, they would be like, okay, you can go, you can get fired if you don't, you know, like, and so anyway, that was an interesting moment to, to hear that. I, I, I hadn't thought of it, but it was like, well, for me, getting the, the diagnosis, it was not as much, oh, I get to tell other people and that gives me belief. It's, I know there's something going on that is classifiable. And, um, you know, because the pacing from sunset to sunrise, you know, seamlessly, you know, without even noticing that the time passed, being able to say, oh, I'm, I was a mania. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, the metaphor for, for myself and my diagnosis that I, that I was, the reason I think it's kind of difficult, because even if people do read articles sometimes, there's still the very deeply held beliefs on like how behavior should be and like, well, I would never do that because like, because if they did, like, how, what does that have to do with their, their like diagnosis, their depression? That doesn't make sense. That's just if you're a good person or not. And I started to think about like, this the whole uh, metaphor about diabetes and people wouldn't say like oh well, why do you need that medicine and it's like well what do you think what would it be like if your brain is actually sick like doesn't actually have the neuro like the neurotransmitters you need like you can think of it on a physicalist level they're not they're not there or they're not where they need to be so how can you do the thing and also um, yeah the thing whatever it is and um, and then also I think that's one reason it's difficult. Um, to tell sometimes that it's it is this thing rather than you as a person whether you're being lazy or procrastinating or you just don't have the will to do it and um oh god sometimes that would make y'all it just makes you forget things <laughs> but speaking of the right medicines oh, yeah. um i forgot what what did i say right before that um, you don't know if it's you or the or the. Or oh, and then and then thinking about what would it feel like though, like since it's your consciousness in a way, like you can't it, you can't tell that you're sick sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like you can't tell that you're being you're being manic. Yeah. You just are like, oh well, I'm just in a little this right now with that, and so it's like because it's your brain or the way you experience the world, it's even hard for you to self conceptualize that that physical thing is happening. Yeah, because I think a lot of people believe that. People who are different in this ways, like, are usually not lucid. And I've always, I mean, with the exception of, like, the short period in my life, I've always felt lucid. Um, and, oh, I was responding to what you were saying. Um, so, like, yeah, so basically, um, your cycling or possibly even your depression could be perceived as just like your quirks mm -hmm. like like just like like oh this like one time I painted this is kind of funny but I had a very loving roommate and one of my best friends but one time I painted all the furniture in our house aqua and it was just like it was like I was a character in the movie and it wasn't like hurting anybody because she liked it but it was like 
I was lucid when I was doing that. I wasn't like, oh, I'm manic now, and I'm just going to do this crazy thing. But, um, but yeah, so I think that um, sometimes you can't, you don't have perspective on yourself because you're just, like, odd, and I've always been odd. And, and especially if you have people around you who encourage that. And, yeah. It's, I think it's, like, it's uh, it's weird how it's hard to tell where yeah where something begins and ends a lot of the time. Or yeah. am I sad today because I'm sad, or am I sad today because I'm depressed? Yeah. And and like you know, is this grief? Is this is this regular grief? Is it just like a bad Monday, or is it like oh this is the beginning, or this is me like diving into this? And then like you said, like you said, yeah. some people just want to paint the furniture aqua like that. You know that could be mania, or it could just be like yeah, you know. Right, and that's, I don't know, I, that's a tough one. And I guess, like, when you talked about um, perspective, I feel like the only thing that's made me start to recognize the difference is actually not feeling that way. Like, I'm like, oh, oh, like, this is what a good day's like, so wait, holy, sh- I have to look through all of this past. Like, oh, I have to look through all of these just, like, drawers full of experiences and be like, oh, that was, that was, yeah, it was dark. That was not just me being like, oh, I, I, I failed that test. That's why I was sad. It's like more like, oh, no, this is my reaction. This is my depressive reaction to things. So I don't know. Has that happened? Because has that like, do, does anyone here who's gone back after getting kind of getting to a better place been like all of these experiences? Oh, I could recatalog my entire life right now. Yeah. yeah. But I also wonder, too, if people also suffer from these things also look back and they're like oh that's how I was reacting to like I did that but I didn't realize what my motives were at the time but mm-hmm. in, in retrospect that was really clearly my motive um, yeah. yeah I don't know I get confused about um, uh, I get confused about the diagnoses and like the experience of people who or people's experiences who share um, these neurochemical um, vulnerabilities. I, I, I'm interested. Oh, I am interested in like. Um, uh, just like the where is it that that when are we in like the the normal zone for feeling sad or the normal zone for. Um, uh, I, I just wonder when it uh, like with with these episodic um, experiences. I wonder sometimes if it's like better defined by um, how, like the degree to which you're functional, because it seems like um, yeah. I just I guess I'm just uh, like the the neurochemistry of you know, sadness is, like, kind of a mystery to me, so I'm just not sure how it is that we know when somebody is, like, like, when there's, there's, um, something malfunctioning versus, yeah. 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 So, Casey, did the example of diabetes, there is, like, two days of being diabetic. Mm -hmm. You either don't release insulin or you release insulin, but you don't act on it. Uh, in terms of depression, are there like 
So when Sapolsky says it's like diabetes, there's a much longer talk. If you search Sapolsky depression, I think he went to Princeton and spoke. And he talks about how you can take someone's blood who's depressed and they have multiple blood markers, right? The same as someone who's diabetic would have uh, blood sugar levels that you could literally measurably detect. And you can say, oh, this person's diabetic. You can actually take someone's blood and they will have a certain hormone profile that's changed. They will have cortisol levels that are out of whack. And so when someone can't get out of bed with depression, they are actually having a biological reaction in their body that is pumping so much cortisol through them that they are, that the reason that they, the reason that they don't want to shower is because their body's literally telling them they're like dying. Basically their body's debilitated them. Um, and there's a psychological component to well, but some, but somehow that psychological component manifests in the same physical ways that any other disease that we classify as a disease does. So it's cortisol overload is what it is? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and, so, um, and so a lot of his work is actually on stress. And I think that may be how he kind of got into depression because he saw stress levels in uh, like baboons that he studied for 25 years straight. Um, and he talks more about that um, uh, in some of his other talks. But yeah, it's like that's kind of... What, what I found so interesting is in his much longer talk, he actually, half of it is a blackboard explanation of what chemically is happening in a person's body. And I think I had a really good quote from him. Let me see if I can find it. I wrote down, oh, um, this is his, this is, these are his, if he, and he says in his talk, if I had to define depression in one sentence, I would say, it's a biochemical disorder with a genetic component and early experience influences where somebody can't appreciate sunsets. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, um, and that's like, uh, you know, um, that's, uh, that's one of the things I think that makes it, um, interesting that it's still treated, if there's this much information out there and it's still treated as like a pick yourself up or like, oh, you're just being extra sensitive today or like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then we really have a problem if that's why, you know, and, and, and the weird part is it's not just in. Uh, the media. It's like, you go to a therapist and they'll tell you you don't need medicine. You go to a psychiatrist and they'll tell you therapy doesn't work. Right? And so there's like kind of ego and attachments all over the place that that like, as a depressive person, I had to sift through and I had to watch people sift through. And I think that's one of the things I liked most about talking about it is because I can actually sit down with someone and figure out what a good therapist is. Right? And I can give someone advice and be like, Get away from your therapist. Fire them now. Go find someone who's not them. You know. Um, and 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 for years I was alone, and I just went to therapist, and I was like, well, they're the expert. Um, all right, I don't feel any better. I guess this is just a slow process, you know, or, or whatever. And I think that, um, yeah. But markers do have to take a good or bad. I mean, everyone's experience is going to be obviously personal, right? You're going through different things, but the first marker is, are you comfortable with them? And I don't, I don't, if you, you know, there are people who are not very in touch with their feelings and right, you're going to be uncomfortable with anybody talking about your feelings, but are you personally comfortable with them? And if not, get out, leave immediately. If 30 minutes after you meet them, you're like, this guy gives me a weird vibe or this woman makes me uncomfortable in any way, shape or form, uh, leave. Um, secondly, are they projecting anything onto you about your situation, right? Are they 
Are they um, making you feel bad about yourself? Right? Then get out and go. Um, and are they? Are they? Are they kind of? And I think for for good, are they constantly interrogating their experience with you to try to better understand you and aid you through the process? Then that's a good therapist, right? And a good therapist has. Uh, humility. I feel like that's another really important thing. And I think that from my friend who's doing a psychology PhD program, that's actually not an encouraged trait in therapists. Humility is not something psychology PhD programs peddle in, right? But if someone's going to help you personally, just you, right? And they have a lot of other people that are trying to help too. They're going to have to say, I don't have the one right way that's going to work on everyone. And I'm just going to go, ah, here you go. Uh, they're going to say, I'm sitting in front of, in my case, I'm sitting in front of, a, of, a, of a, an emotionally intelligent perfectionist who's obsessed with being perfect and who's um, gone through a lot of childhood trauma and who, and who has this history of being the one who holds it together. And I'm going to have to approach this person as I learn them. And we're going to have to tailor our conversations to not hitting the things that make them freak out and run away. And then every patient they have has their own kind of and I think So I think in that way, uh, really humility and curiosity are probably the two most important components of a good therapist that I can think of. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, so. <laughs> well, just to talk that occurred uh, uh, especially based on this video of like, you know, poverty, oftentimes, you know, it masks, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, depression. Uh, but uh, what about uh, cultural issues? Because there are cultures, uh, East Asian culture, supposedly, you know, whatever happens to you, that is exactly what as you are told, you know, try harder next time or if you fall down and, you know, there is uh, that this problem of lack of empathy and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> so, in the book, he actually goes around the world to find mental health. And one of the places that he works with a woman who survived the Khmer Rouge. And she has set up an organization for women that survived the Khmer Rouge. And their experiences are just beyond horrific. And, and the reason the woman set up the organization is because after everyone survived, they all survived. But after they survived, some of the, the mothers were so traumatized that they stopped caring for their children because they, they, they made it, right? They held it together, and then, they, and then they couldn't speak or things like that. And so, so you know, um, he, he, he visits, he goes to Greenland, and he, he, work, he works with, uh, with uh, like, native Greenlanders who have to survive brutal 10-month winters, and people die from all kinds of brutal aspects of winter. And so he basically goes around the world, and he talks about how... Obviously, in, in cultures, there are things that are keeping people from getting treatment, but that he, he basically finds that depression is a worldwide phenomenon that needs to be treated as a worldwide phenomenon. And it doesn't mean that every culture has to treat it exactly the same. It just means that every culture needs to acknowledge it and treat it in the ways that work for them. So I, and I think that, that um, he talks a little bit about this idea that it's a Western phenomenon. And I think there are cultures. I mean, I think that... There, there obviously are cultures that are even probably more closed off than the American culture regarding um, productively dealing with feelings. I don't think that we're closed off around feelings. I think we're closed off around productively dealing with feelings. And they're closed off on actual, like, often the deeper real feelings. I think we, we kind of have like a, like a, what was it you described as, as like an 
a peach. Americans are like a peach. They have a soft exterior and a hard, rock hard center. Yeah. And I think that, that, so we have our own issues, right? And I think that other cultures have their kind of, uh, their structure. And so in Greenland in the book, these two women have set up this thing because what happens is that when you're in Greenland, you're trapped in a hut for like nine months out of the year with your entire family and it's, and it's negative 40. And if you say anything bad and there's this fear, there's this real fear in Greenland that if you say anything negative, you're going to destroy the morale and everyone's just going to go kill themselves. And this is not because, because someone could go out to fish and they could die. Right. And this really happens. And so their culture, the way they've dealt with this reality is no one speaks to anything negative. But this woman realized in Greenland, she's from there, that people needed to have a place. And so she just asked people how they're doing. And if they don't just say, fine, she's like, you can come to my house if you'd like. And then so like she has now acted as the, the only um, psychi- uh, psychologist in her uh, area. She just allows people to come to her house and cry and say, oh, my God, it's so awful. It's so awful. It's so awful. And like, and, 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 sh- and tons of people have, have taken advantage of this. So I think... You know, he, he kind of cast this like this needs to be worked on everywhere, but there are hopeful spots in every in every culture. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Thanks for a really really great time. Thank you for joining us today in the Room of Lives. In the next episode, Pace tells us about something completely different. On one occasion, Pace confided to me that his depression had driven him to want to die, but he at least wanted to die doing work that he considered meaningful and worthy. So after he finished his studies, which included learning Arabic, Pace went to Palestine under the pretense of being a backpacking tourist and began to work with the international solidarity movement there. This is an organization led by Palestinians, but also comprising Israelis and other foreign nationals, whose objective is to support the popular Palestinian resistance through nonviolent means. Several of Pace's colleagues were killed while doing this work, but he made it back alive. And in the next episode, he's going to tell us all about it.